So this morning, as we're continuing on this journey, I just want you just to pause for a moment. Um, if you've been at the church for the last 18 months or so, you've seen the, we've really focused a lot on this guy named Jesus. Anybody heard of him before? Yeah. And, and specifically, the last 16 months, 14, 15, 16 months, we've been in Matthew, and we've been going through the high teaching points of Jesus' teaching in Matthew to really understand what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? This has been a long process, but it's been a really important process. And so now we, we come to this place now where we've gone through uh, Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew 10, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and now we're in Matthew 24, and now Matthew 25. And so this week and in the next two weeks, we'll conclude this, the whole series. And so I wanted just to kind of get the big picture here because it's a lot for us to digest. But, but in the words of Jesus, what you and I have experienced over the last 16 months is Jesus' definition of what it means to understand who he is, learn how to follow him, and then anticipate his return someday. Not in Pastor John's words, not in a term interpretation, but what Jesus has said to us. That's why we read from the scriptures. I encourage you to read these passages and let Jesus speak to you. Because what's the most important thing for all of us is that we follow Jesus. So that someday when he returns, it is not, oh no, here he comes. It is with great anticipation. We're excited that he's coming back because we've been waiting. We're prepared. Which is what we're talking about today. We're kind of in the middle of this last series of the, the broader series. And this one's called The Return of the King. We're talking about, in Jesus' words, how he gives you and I specific information about his return. That he's coming back someday because his desire is that people would come and be reconciled back to God through him. So that we could be with God forever in eternity. And he's coming back someday for that purpose. So the last couple of weeks we've talked about, Jesus said, the signs that you need to be aware of. And then, then he goes into these stories or parables about... About what you and I need to be prepared with. And last week we talked about routine. This week we're going to talk about complacency in our lives in a story that Jesus tells in the first 13 verses of Matthew 25 about how you and I, whether we know it or not, in, in, our, in our walk with Jesus and even in life in general, we can go through seasons of our life where we don't even realize that we've become complacent. We don't even realize that we've disconnected or that we've tuned out or that we've backed away from the things that we were pursuing and following Jesus in our life. It happens in just the rhythm of life where you and I slowly and gradually almost go to sleep because we're not necessarily paying attention to what's going on. It's, it's what happens in almost every Little League baseball game every single day year. Anybody play Little League Baseball or understand the game of baseball? So if you know Little League Baseball, one of the things, you don't even have to have coached it just to play it. Where does the worst player on the team play? Right field. Exactly. I was someone in between services said it, it doesn't work for men's softball because guys can hit it anywhere on the field. But so right field is usually where the ball doesn't go. That's like the, the left out. Most, most batters are right-handed, so they usually will hit the left field. So you always take the worst player and you stick them out in right field. Now, if you ever, next time you go to a Little League game, especially the younger, you'll, you'll see this more, just watch the right fielder. It's, it's actually pretty entertaining because usually the right fielder has no idea what's going on in the game because the ball's never hit to them, and they're not, usually not a very good player. And so they're very distracted. They're just kind of out there. You, you kind of wonder if they know even if they're on the planet anymore. They're just looking at the daisies and watching butterflies and looking at the sky and just not paying attention. And, and in my, my entirety of my baseball career was one season. That's how much I played baseball in my life. And there's a reason. Um, I batted 175. I had three hits all year. Played outfield, couldn't even do that very well. I'll tell you another story. I actually literally got knocked out cold by a ground ball to the outfield. That's how bad I was. <laughs> so I was in left field. They should have put me in right field because the ball was hit to me. 
But, but the highlight of my career came at the expense of a distracted right fielder who lost sight of what was going on. I was such a bad hitter, and I couldn't really hit. So I, to that point in the season, I had two singles and, like, 25 strikeouts and then a couple of walks and barely made a contact with the ball. And so, so we were playing, and, and, I, and I, to this day, I'm, I'm pretty sure I think I just closed my eyes. That's how bad I was, just hoping something would happen. And I swung at, when I was at bat, and, and the ball just flew out to right field. And so as it's going, the benefit was that the right fielder was the worst player on the field, and most likely he was daydreaming, and the ball sailed way over his head, and he didn't even react to it. Not at all. And so I started running, and I'm thinking, man, I can, I can make it around the bases. I can actually do so. I get to first. I'm cruising. I see the ball's rolling still. He finally wakes up from his slumber, and he's chasing it. I get to second, and then I get to third. And the, the coach at third, he's like, you could tell he wanted to wave me in, but he's starting to hesitate. It's like, are you wanting me to go, or you want me to stay? And so I turned third, and I started heading for home, only to find as I turned third base, the guy in front of me was a little slow. He was on base in front of me. He was literally two steps in front of me, and I was about to lap him. And I, you can't do that in baseball. It doesn't work that way. So I had to slam on the brakes and go back to third. And I, and I sat there, and I was like, I don't care if I hit a home run. I hit the ball. It went over the guy's head. I, like, I can end my career in happiness right now. But it all came down to I just happened to be lucky enough to hit the ball where the guy wasn't paying attention. And sometimes you and I have to realize we are stuck in right field when it comes to Jesus' return. We're not thinking about it. We're not prepared for, for, for it. We're not anticipating it. We're, we're, we're focusing on other things around us, distractions, things that we think are valuable, important. But we're not keeping this mindset that sooner or later, the ball's going to come our way. And are we going to completely miss it? The tragedy in missing the return of Jesus is nobody's really going to miss it. It's how are we going to respond to it? Are we going to be ready for it? So with that understanding today, let me read verses 1 through 13 of Matthew 25. And again, Jesus tells a parable or a story to bring a correlation between his return and the way that you and I should be prepared. So in verse 1, Jesus says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or modern translation would be uh, bridesmaids, or brides, uh, or so part of a wedding party, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may, there may not be enough for both of us, us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Verse 11, later the others came, also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So let's just back up a little bit here. So you and I, when we think of a wedding, we have a certain kind of idea of what weddings are like in our day and age. They're a big deal. In fact, they become a bigger and bigger deal as time goes on because they cost more and more money. How many know how, that's crazy how much weddings? I mean, some of, the, some of the weddings that I've seen, I mean, I could live off of for like five years, you know, with the amount of money that's put into one day and one event. But back in Jesus' time, a Jewish wedding was a huge undertaking. It was a huge event. It was something that everybody participated. Everybody was uh, anticipating being a part of. And, and so it was a big deal. And when they did weddings, they usually did them in the evening time. 
So that when they did that, that's why the story kind of takes place at night because they're waiting for the groom to show up and obviously they need lamps to light their way because they don't have electricity. This is 2,000 years ago. They didn't have what we have. So there's this preparation that goes into it. And so as we're, as we're seeing the story, what, what they're having to do in a practical sense is they're having to think beyond this moment to the next one. If I'm waiting long enough, it's going to get dark. And if it's going to get dark, I need to have light. So how do I have light? Well, in that day and age, what they would do is it almost they would carry like a torch. It would be a stick with a piece of material that they could dip into oil. And then they would wrap it around the end of the stick and they would light it. And obviously it would burn as long as they had oil in that saturated uh, piece of material. And then it would burn out. But if you didn't have any oil, you might be able to burn the material, but you couldn't get it to stay lit. You couldn't get it to last. And so they weren't really prepared, and, but but... That's why this, this Jesus is trying to illustrate this. And, and br- these bridesmaids, the, the normal kind of routine for a wedding there is that the groom would be somewhere as he's coming to the feast or coming to the wedding. And the bridesmaids would be with the bride in the house waiting patiently. And when the, when the groom would come, it would be like a big deal. They would like probably have a lookout. Someone would know he's coming. So then they would come outside and they would be outside waiting for him. And as he came in, there would be this big processional of welcoming him in to, to where the bride is and to the whole celebration. And then this huge feast would start, which is crazy because they'd start with a party that night. And then it would go seven days, seven days. Of, of like celebration and party. And then in Jewish culture, you would normally get a year off when you got married. We're like, yes, I'm getting married tomorrow, right? Because it was like, okay, it's this year to get acquainted. So it was this huge cultural event for them. So when Jesus tells this illustration, they're all leaning in going, yeah, we, we know, we've gone to lots of weddings. I've been married, I've experienced this. And so they completely understand the way that it works and the preparation of the bridesmaids to receive the groom when he shows up. This is a common thing in their culture. So with that understanding, there's some things that Jesus highlights that are really for them and then for us. There are signs of complacency in our life that you and I have to be willing to address and face so that we don't end up not being ready for when Jesus comes back, not anticipating his return. Again, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the specific time. But it's living in a way that we have this, this constant awareness that in this day right now, this could be the last day that we walk this planet. It could be because our life ends today or it could be because Jesus decides to come back. We have to live with that present reality. So, so if you and I end up like the right fielder, here's, here's, here's some signs that we are, we're living that out. The first thing, look at verse 3, is a sign of complacency is a nearsighted life. So that verse 3, it says, The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. So they had like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's have this ready, but I don't have anything that it, with me that I can actually sustain this so that I can light it and it's going to stay lit for longer than three minutes. They're thinking about just right now. Maybe they're caught up in like the whole excitement of the wedding. They were so excited that the bride had invited them to be a part of it. Think about it. This is a good-sized wedding. Ten bridesmaids. That's pretty big. But they're all excited, and so maybe they just forgot. But, but what, whatever the reason is, you can tell they're not thinking to the next step. They're not thinking, how long am I going to have to wait before the groom shows up? They're just thinking right here, right now. So at least I have my lamp, but I don't have anything to sustain it being lit long enough for whenever the groom shows up. They're just seeing right now. And I think for you and I, that's the tension that you and I, if you choose to follow Jesus, you live in this tension. I'm fully present right now, but I always have my eye on the future, that Jesus is going to return someday or I'm going to see him someday when my life ends. So there is this, this tension, this accountability that I constantly live in. 
Always being prepared for what is going to happen in the future. Always realizing the decisions I make right now have an impact on what happens tomorrow in my life and following Jesus. It's not unlike in every, every year in Oregon, there's this, this cycle that Kim and I discovered. So Oregon gets a lot of rain and they get a lot of snow. And when you hit the spring and the snow melts, all the rivers kind of rise and people get out of their hibernation and they go swimming. And you always hear, it's like all the reports of people drowning because people don't realize how cold the water is. And then at the same time, people go out and they really start hiking. A lot of people go hiking in Oregon. But this, it's like this new cycle would repeat itself every single week throughout the spring into June and sometimes into July. Some hikers would go out for a beautiful day hike because the sun has come out. And it's really funny in Oregon, when the sun comes out, people like go. They get out. It's like, hey, it's good weather. But what happened over and over again, people would go hiking and this would happen. A hiker didn't return today and we found their car was near the trailhead and family's concerned because they only went out for a four-hour hike, but they haven't returned and it's like midnight. It's like this over and over again. And the reason they were concerned is because all they had was shorts and a t-shirt and one bottle of water. They weren't ready for overnight camping. They weren't prepared for the elements. And in Oregon, even in the spring, the temperature can drop tremendously down to like into the 30s. Even in the springtime, sometimes even in the early summer, it can get that cold. And so you're, they're out there in the elements, and they're not ready for this. And so then this big search is on. And then if another day goes by, and like another night, then they're really concerned they're going to survive. And then sometimes people just don't even make it back. And the reason why is because they went out for what? I'm going out for four hours. What could happen in four hours? I'm fine. I got enough water. The sun is out. It's 80 degrees. I've got my t-shirt and my shorts on and my hiking boots. What possibly could happen until something happens that they never anticipated? They didn't prepare for, and now they're stuck. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. That when you and I live so nearsighted that all I can see is what's going to happen right now in my relationships, my friendships, my career, my job, my school, whatever it is, but I'm not looking on to the future of what may happen tomorrow or the next day or the next week of anticipating that this all may come to an end in a moment. And am I ready for that? Am I living with that kind of preparation that that could happen at any time? The second thing, going on to verse 8, look, verse 8, sign of complacency also is an unprepared life. So Jesus says, the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our, lamp, our lamps are going out. So what happens is they're unprepared and they take their unpreparedness and then they push it on the ones who were prepared. Anybody know that kind of person that they, they're a mess in life and then they require you to bail them out? You don't have to raise your hand if they're sitting next to you right now. But we all have those, maybe some of us, we know we're that way. We don't think beyond it and then we turn like, hey, can you bail me out here because I wasn't ready for this. Because we weren't prepared. And we, we know those kinds of people in our lives that they live that way. And maybe some of us live that way. and think, hey, I'm just going to get by today. I'm just going to get by this week. I'm just going to make sure that I have enough for now. But not really think about the future. Not really be prepared. And you live in this, this constant state of just barely getting by. We do that in our walk with Jesus. If I can just get enough that, you know, I feel okay today and, and maybe, you know, I went to church and at least two times out of the month, that's good for me and so I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I cracked my Bible once this week and, and I did just enough and I'm just, at least I think I'm just enough prepared for the moment not realizing Jesus is not interested in church attendance or devotions. He's interested in your heart and your life and it's so much bigger and he's calling us to something that's far broader than the way that we kind of interpret our faith and we think that if we do enough to kind of make sure that all the pieces look good and the house is kind of cleaned up and in order, then maybe when he shows up, I'll be ready, as opposed to saying, you know, what? I'm going to surrender my life today, tomorrow, the future, and anticipating Jesus is going to return. So I'm going to live every single day with this in mind. 
every single day that today could be the last day. See, it's really easy if you and I, here's, here's the thing, if we had it our way, if we were the writers of history, if we were God, you know how we do it? We would set it up that Jesus would pick a date and a time and say, hey, I'm coming back. Wouldn't that be easier? Then you're like, okay, it's like planning for something. You know the date, it's coming, so you do preparations. When Courtney and Jordan were younger, Kim and I used to go to camp with them all the time, and we would be the cabin leaders. And, and uh, the, the, cabin, or the, the camp up in, in Oregon, they had uh, what were called deans. There's like three or four of them, and they were like the enforcers. So if kids got out of line, you went and found a dean, and they would take care of them. They also were in charge of making sure that the cabins were clean. And when you have like third and fourth graders, cleanliness is not a value that they have at that age. And so, but what they did is they would set up a time within like the first two days of camp starting and say, okay, this is clean cabin morning. And so you're going to make sure your cabins are clean. And the way they would motivate is that they would say, okay, we're coming at 10 o'clock when the kids are in a session, make sure your rooms are clean. And so it was interesting over time. What happened is the deans would give awards to the cleanest cabin. So that really motivates kids. But what would happen is that the counselors or the cabin leaders like us would know a little bribery goes a long way. So we would clean the room, but we'd also leave like candy on every pillow, all kinds of stuff. Some people would actually leave money. It was like total, it was great. Teaching your third and fourth graders bribery works. That was the whole lesson, it seemed like. So we did that. So the second day of camp was like cleanup time. And so we did it. I mean, it was amazing. You would have, moms would have been so proud, third and fourth grade boys. I mean, the room was spotless. We vacuumed, we made beds. We actually folded clothes and put them in the suitcase. I mean, all this stuff. So they go through and we get the award that next day. And our guys are so excited. There's a problem though, because then a couple days later, they start doing unannounced visits to your cabin. Not telling you when they're going to show up. They're just going to show up. And when they walk in, it didn't look anything like it looked the first time. There's underwear hanging all over the place. And there's candy wrappers everywhere. It's just an absolute mess. And then in comes the dean. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, the party's over. And then all the guys are scrambling to try to get everything together. And you never can quite do that. It's the same thing. We we wish that you say, okay, date and time. Just be ready. Have your room clean and I'll show up. But he doesn't do that. He says you have to constantly live prepared that I may show up at any time. Now, that doesn't mean, for some of us, like, that means I have to be perfect every day. I can't swear today. I can't have a bad thought today. I can't do anything wrong today. Because if Jesus comes back, then it's the end. No, it's having a mindset and a heart that is turned toward him in such a way that you're fully aware that today could be the day so you live life to the fullest. Because so many times, our default, what? It's behavior modification. Just be good enough for Jesus. No, he wants your life He wants your heart. He wants your full attention. He wants your focus. And if he has that, he'll have all the other stuff that you and I worry about. If we have that focus, he's going to come anytime. So I have to live in this constant state of preparedness. Third thing Jesus says in verse 10 about a sign of complacency is you and I live a distracted life. He says, but while, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went, uh, went in with him to the wedding party and the door was shut. So they started the party, they're in there, but the others are left out because why? They had to go get oil. They couldn't go in. They, they weren't ready. They were, now they're distracted by their responsibility to go get light, to go get oil, to make sure that they can see what they're doing. But the very thing that they were supposed to be prepared for is the very thing they've been distracted by to go do because they weren't ready. And this, I think, of all, I think, the signs of complacency in our life, this one seems to scream our culture. We are distracted. We are distracted by many, what we would consider important things in our life. 
In fact, Jesus talked about this in Luke 14. Let me read verse 15 through 20. Jesus talked again. The analogy of a banquet is being used, but he's talking about distractions. It says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just found five, or bought five yoke of oxen. I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, if you and I look at what Jesus is saying, there's a reason he selected each one of those people because they represent something that all of us have a tendency to value. And they are important things, but those become something that we value more than even our following of Jesus and preparedness for him. He highlights a piece of land, a possession. This guy just bought land and says, okay, I got some land now. I have some ownership. I have some possessions. I need to make sure that I'm taking care of that. I'm tending to that because it's really important. How many times in our life do we buy something and we say we own it, but really what happens is it owns us. It owns us. It controls us. It tells us what we can and cannot do with our life and how we respond to Jesus. You know, on my street, maybe it's like your street in Simi Valley, I can look up and down the street, and I, sometimes I see things in the driveway and in the RV parking that outvalue the house that the person lives in. I mean, on our street, there are multiple motorhomes, there are boats, there are sea-doos, there are nice cars, there are all these possessions. I don't even know what's inside their house. It's probably even really nicer. But I can guarantee you, almost everybody on my street has a mortgage, has a car payment, has a motorhome payment, has a boat payment. And if you ask them if they could do anything financially, they say, oh, no, I I can't. I have too much debt. I have this responsibility. I have to take care of my responsibility. And that's a lot of us, is that we can't say yes to Jesus because we're not ready for him. Because we've what? Now our possessions, who we think we own, they actually own us. And then he mentions the the third one, which we don't like this one. This one's a little sticky. I mean, come on, you just got married. Right? In Jewish culture, I get a year off to spend with my bride. I want to make sure I'm a good husband. So I just got married. I can't come to your banquet because I want to be a good husband or a good wife. Isn't that noble? Isn't that wonderful? But that means sometimes you and I have to be careful. Even our own families can become something that distracts us from God. Think, how is that possible? God created the family. He created marriage. He did. But when you and I think we can't do anything because... We have to make sure that our kids are safe, that our kids are okay, or that our spouse is happy. And we continue to say no to Jesus when he's wanting us to live obediently in our life. We have to take a step back and say, wait a second. Am I living the life God's called me to live? Or am I being distracted? Sometimes Family is a good thing. But when all we do is, and honestly, I know sometimes we, we can hide behind our family. We can. We can make our family, ah, it looks really good. I want to be all about my family. But at the same time, we know that it's just giving me a convenient excuse. That's why they said, please excuse me to not do what God's called me to do, to not be prepared, to not be ready for when he returns. It's really quiet in here, man. Every week, it's about this time. It's like, whoa. It's either the adrenaline low or, man, this is really hard. One of the two. So look at verse 11. Another sign of complacency Jesus highlights is an entitled life. It says, he goes on, verse 11, it says, later the others also came. They said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. Just think about that for a moment. So they are late, they show up, and here's what's going on culturally. You have to understand this. 
When there was a wedding feast in Jewish culture, you had a host. Remember when Jesus came and turned water into wine? Remember they took him to the host, they went to the host, and the host sampled the wine. The host is the one who's kind of like the event coordinator. It's like the wedding planner, right? They're in charge of everything. They're responsible. And in Jewish culture, if you didn't show up on time to the feast, it was a direct insult to the host. On top of that, you're a part of the wedding party, and you can't even get there on time. And once the party has already started, now you're asking the entire wedding party and the host to stop everything just for you so that they can open the door and you can come in and be a part of the party. Now, you and I think, well, come on, just let them in. They're just a little late. Yeah, they overlooked the whole oil and the lamp thing. Let them in. That's not what's going here. It's completely offensive because they're saying to them, Our time and what we want to do is more important than what your schedule is. Therefore, you should let us in. They're saying, no, you can't come in. You know the way this works. This is about the bride and the groom. This is not about you. And sometimes you and I have a tendency to live that way. We think when it comes to following Jesus that all of what Jesus says applies to somebody else. It doesn't apply to me. It's for those people because somehow at the end, I think some of us were confused into thinking, you know, when it all comes to the end and Jesus comes back, he's going to kind of give me a free pass on the side. You know, I mean, all the stuff that we're going through, it's like all the signs and yeah, you know, being ready and all that stuff. But, you know, ultimately, because God loves me and because there's grace, I can pretty much do what I want to do. And then at the end, he's going to let me in. Come on, really? Trying to scare me into this kind of stuff. That's not what it's going to be like. And I don't think anybody thinks through that way, but that's the way that we live. We live our lives because at one time or another, we all think that we're the exception to the rule. We all think that we get special privileges. Anytime you question that, go to the market today, go stand in line for the 10 items or less, and start counting items on the belt. Anybody want to admit you've counted items on the belt? I have. Okay, all four of you, come on, really? Most, well, most of us have, right? And you, 11, you're like, really? Come on, 11, you get a bonus. We all have to have 10 or less, but you, and then when there's that person who slips in 13 or 14, now you're really mad. And then if they go to 20, might might as well kill you right here, right? You're so angry. (laughs) Is that just me? I mean, you feel that way, right? Why? Why? What is that inside of us? It's, It's not fair. You think you're the exception. You think you're entitled. You're more important than all the rest of us that you get to, to break the rules because somehow, You have a busier schedule, a more valuable, important life, whatever it might be. Now think about that, what what Jesus is using analogy here. You you don't pay attention to the signs. You don't prepare. You don't really follow me. And then you wait to the last minute just before the door closes. And then the door closes. You're like, wait, 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 wait. I want to get in. Second chance. Come on. I want to get in now. Let me in. You're going to give me a free pass, right? And Jesus will say, no. I gave you the signs. I warned you. I told you to be prepared. All of human history, I've been reaching out to you to try to get your attention. All of your life, I've tried to draw you in. And you wait till the very last minute, and actually now it's too late. You weren't ready, and I told you I was coming. The same thing is this this analogy. You and I have to understand that's a sign of complacency. If we think we're entitled when it comes to faith, when it comes to Jesus, that somehow everybody else has to be a disciple. Everybody else has to follow Jesus. Everybody else has to do that stuff. But somehow I'm getting in the door because I have my own theology that kind of comes up with that on its own. All of the words that we've gone through in all of the chapters of Matthew that we've digested apply to all of us. All of us. And that's what we'll be accountable for. God loves us and there's grace and he forgives us, but he gives us a context to be reconciled back to God, not to just go live the way we want to and then wait for the last moment and just slide in. 
They thought they would make it back in time before the door closed. Because I can guarantee you, those five foolish bridesmaids knew when the door closed, they knew the door would be closed. They did. Because they knew Jewish culture. The party started, you're out. But they thought, oh, we can just slip in. Maybe we'll just knock and they'll let us in. There was an exception. So how do you and I, knowing those are the signs, how do you and I remain ready in our life? Living with the tension that we're fully present in the moment, but we're anticipating that there's this future event that could happen in our lifetime. Look at verse 4, going back to verse 4. The first thing is to live each day with the future in mind. Jesus said, The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. They were fully present, fully anticipating the groom, celebrating all the, all the while, but also knowing that the groom could take longer than they thought or longer than they wanted him to. They were prepared for whatever might come in the timing it might come. They were living with this tension. I'm fully here waiting for him to come back, but he could take a little bit longer. And that's true for every generation since Jesus walked the planet. That's the tension we live in. Every generation believes that Jesus is coming back, and we anticipate that, but we continue to wait. And why is God doing that? Because he's not coming back? No, we've talked about this. In Second Peter, Peter writes about it. He says the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because God is patient. He's waiting because the longer human history goes on, the more chance people have to know who Jesus is and be reconciled back to God. And his patience comes in two forms. One, he's waiting for the world to discover who he is. And secondly, I believe he's waiting for the church to wake up to the Great Commission. That's why he's patient. Man, if, if my people get this, we'll be done in a year. Seriously, we will. We could be done in less than a year. Jesus could come back because Matthew twenty four fourteen tells us when the gospel's been preached to every nation, every people group, then the end will come. But he's waiting for you and I to, to step up to that commission that he's given to you and I. So living this reality of, this is the way it's crazy. We don't know the day and the time, but we know just about everything else. We know the expectation Jesus puts on us. We know if you've come to church, maybe it's the first time for you. If you've been around church, you've read the scriptures, you know that a personal relationship with Jesus, surrendering your life to him, turning your, your life on, on, or turning your, your whole attention and focus on what you used to be and turning it to Jesus, allowing his forgiveness to come to bear because of the cross and choosing to follow him the rest of your life. That's the criteria we're working with. And ultimately, what he's going to look for us in is, did you make disciples? So this is the crazy thing. When we stand before Jesus someday, it's not a pop quiz. It's not a, oh, bait and switch. Nope, sorry, different criteria that's going to get you in the door. We know what's going to be on the test. Isn't that great? Don't you love when an instructor says, okay, I'm going to give you the test, go home and study, and this is the test you'll take. Don't you love that? There's no surprise. Maybe you never had a teacher that did that. Can come you're like, really, a teacher would do that? Courtney and Jordan just got their driver's license within the last, Courtney, about four or five months ago, Jordan, like the last two months. And as they went through the process of getting their license, they had to go to driving lessons. Probably know the fun of that. And as they went through the lessons, the last lesson, because the instructors know what the is on the test, is driving the routes that the DMV and Simi Valley uses over and over and over again. For two hours, Jordan and Courtney did that driving, knowing, okay, they're going to make you go down this street. You're going to have to turn right here. You're going to have to turn left there. You're going to have to make a U-turn here. You're going to, all that. So by the time that we got to the DMV on the appointment day for their driving test, they knew what to expect. Both of them passed. They knew it was coming. Now, the silly thing is if, if you'd say, yeah, I don't need that kind of training. You mean you know what's going to be on the test? I'll figure it out when I get there. And then you show up and you have no idea that they're going to ask you to back up in a straight line. I don't know how to do that. Nobody told me that was coming. That's the kind of the response. What if we respond that way to Jesus? Oh, you, you never told me. But he did tell us. 
He did tell us what's going to come at the end. He did tell us that he was going to return. He did tell us the signs. He did tell us the way that we could be prepared for him. Sometimes you and I have to take a step back and say, okay, am I really digesting what Jesus is saying to me? Because when we hear it and we know it, then we become accountable to it. Second thing, verses 5 and 6. Remaining ready means keeping your focus on Jesus. So it says, The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come. Uh, come out to meet him. So anybody ever fell, fell asleep waiting for something? Yeah, some of you fall asleep waiting for the end of church, but I won't point out who you are, right? We do. You ever been in the airport and your flight gets canceled and you have to wait longer than you anticipated? There's only so many places that you can eat and only so many places that you can walk and you get bored, and, right? Anybody ever done that? It's not very fun, but what happens is you and I, in the meantime, we, we get frustrated, we get distracted. Why? Because usually it's longer than we want it to be. And for all of us, Jesus' return takes longer than we want it to be. When we come to know him, there is that desire. I want to see him. I want him to come back. I want to, all these things he's describing, I want to be able to be a part of that. And so we're waiting for this, but, but he's patient. He's taking longer than we want him to. So between now and when he comes back, or now when, until our life ends and we go to see him, what are we doing in the meantime to make sure that we keep our focus on him? Because everything between now and then is going to be a distraction. Everything is going to try to pull our attention away. The enemy is going to work over and over, over time to try to pull our hearts and our, our minds away from what Jesus wants in our life to what he wants so that somehow we'll be distracted enough so that we won't be able to experience eternity with him. So what are we doing to keep our focus? How are you and I doing things in our life intentionally to make sure that my heart and my mind are focused on what Jesus is doing every single moment of the day? Now, here's the tension. You can have times where you go off and you're by yourself with the Lord and you're connected and he speaks to you, which is extremely important. But you and I cannot come back into the real world and think that Jesus is still hanging out in my devotion time because he's still hanging out in the world too. He's present where we are. But what are we doing intentionally to make sure that our focus is still on Jesus? Because maybe, I don't know if you're like me, I try to set up somewhat of a schedule of devotions to make sure that I'm connecting with Jesus. But if you're like me, the routine can kill me and it makes it, religious and something I don't want to do. Anybody willing to admit that? You've ever done that? You get on a reading plan and you're trying to read through the Bible in a year and you miss two days and you're like, man, 20 chapters? I don't think I can do it. And you feel guilty, right? Because it's all about the checkbox. It can't be about the checkbox. It has to be keeping our focus on Jesus. Making sure that we're, we're doing that in such a way that we're connected to him. I know for me, I've done little things like when I spend time with the Lord in the morning, I'll write down some notes or whatever, or a verse will stand out to me. I will put it on my reminders on my phone. So at like 11 o'clock or 2 o'clock, when I'm in the middle of the day and I've forgotten, the reminder comes on. I'm like, oh, yeah. And usually when I do that, it's always right in the midst of, boy, Jesus, it's like the Holy Spirit uses the iPhone. I think I'm convinced he does. So some of you are like not Mac fans. You're like, oh, man, that's like blasphemy right here, right? No, but seriously, it's just that moment. It's like, oh, right in the middle of a conversation, right in the middle of a thought, and like, oh, yeah, I needed to remember that. The Holy Spirit was working that out. It's staying connected, not distracted. And I don't know what it is for you, but it's, it rhythms life. It's taking time away. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do as a staff is make sure that the staff has healthy rhythms in following Jesus. And so we just instituted this last week. The staff gets one sabbatical day every two months. They get to go. Not, it's not a vacation day. It's not a sick day. It's not, I get to stay home in my PJs and watch TV day. It's, I'm going to go away and spend this whole day just alone with God. No distractions, no work, no email, no text, no phone, none of that. Just to be with him. 
to stay connected to him. What is it in your life that takes that kind of connection and keeps it going, keeps you focused, keeps you alert? You know, I've mentioned Oregon quite a few times, but when we, you know, we were living in Oregon, seven years, I can't, I have to go back and count how many times, but at least three times a year we would make the trip back and forth from Southern California to Oregon. It's a thousand miles one way. It's a long drive, a long drive. And when we started to get really tired of the drive, we, we developed this pattern of driving at night so we could get home faster. Less traffic, you can go longer periods of time. When the kids were younger, they would sleep. I mean, I had one stretch with six and a half hours. It was awesome. No potty stops, nothing, because that's how far the car could go without running out of gas. But I know when we would do that, Kim would take some of the shifts, but I would usually take the line share of the, the nighttime driving. And so I knew that, that, that I had to set a rhythm for myself to make sure that I didn't fall asleep and kill my family in the process. That would be a bad thing. So we had a rhythm down. I knew when we took off, I could go, if we leave at like 8 at night, and so I knew right around, we can get a good four hours in, around maybe 11 to midnight, right around there, I knew I needed to stop, and I needed to buy two five-hour energy drinks. Okay, that was my first stop. And so I thought, okay, if I have two of those in the car, I can continue to be alert enough. And if they didn't have that, it would be like a really huge cup of really dense coffee, right? But the five-hour energy would work for me. The other thing I realized, if I sit in the seat too long and don't move, I start to get drowsy. So I would constantly be squirming and moving. Kim didn't see us. I would sometimes drive like this, or I'd drive like this because I'm sitting in different positions. I'd stretch my legs. I'd one hand, two hands, whatever it is. I knew if, as long as I kept my body moving, I wouldn't kind of freeze up and start to, to get sleepy. I would sometimes even blink a lot. I'd slap my face. I'd do all this stuff. All the Kim and the kids are sleeping. They don't know what I'm doing. I'd have, I'd have my phone, and I have one one earbud in one of my ears to listen to music or a podcast. And so I'd have noise, I'd have movement, I'd had five-hour energy drink, and I knew if I had all those three things together, I'm going to stay focused and we're going to get home. In fact, our record is 14 hours and 20 minutes. Two stops. Two stops. I'm really proud of this, let me tell you. We stopped in like Salinas and we stopped in Redding and that was it. Redding to like the Portland area is like 400 and almost 50 miles no stops. It was awesome. Now, of course, you know, when you have young kids, and we were all about ready to burst by the time we got back, but we still made it in two stops. It was awesome. But the point is, the reason we did that is because I knew there were things I had to do to stay focused. And that is a decision all of us have to make. What am I going to do in my life to make sure that I keep my focus on Jesus? What distracts me? What causes me to get drowsy in my walk with Jesus? What causes me to disengage? What are the things that I need to do in my life to make sure that I'm staying focused on him? Which leads to the final thing in verse 12, is that not only do we have to be focused, but maintain your connection with Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus says, But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Scary again. Jesus brings up that phrase again. This is not the only time Jesus says to people who are wanting to get into the kingdom at the end, and he looks at them and he says, I don't know you. Now in the passage, you see that that something shifted here because Jesus was talking about a wedding feast over here, and he's talking about people coming to the door, and then just the verse before, it says, Lord, Lord, and then he says, I don't know you. Now, why in the world would the host come to the door when five of the bridesmaids, who he knows are running a little late, have come and they're knocking on the door and he'll walk out and say, sorry, I don't know you. That doesn't fit, does it? He would know who they are. They're part of the wedding party. But Jesus has shifted. He's now not talking about a wedding feast anymore. He's talking about when he returns and people who 
come to the door and knock at the last minute and said, hey, I get in, right? I get in. And he looks down and he says, he doesn't say, you didn't know me. He says, I don't know you. That's completely different. See, because I'm convinced the majority of people would say, now, in places where people haven't been reached, that's not true, but for most people, they know who Jesus is. At least in our culture, most people who have a concept of who Jesus is, it might not be the right one, but they have that some idea. So they could easily say, yeah, I know you, Jesus. But it's how he responds. But I don't know you. And how, how can he say that? I think sometimes you and I lose what it means to connect with Jesus because although we fight this thing called religion and we always make fun of the Pharisees, we become just like them. Because if you and I just think about how do you stay connected? How do you get to know each other? How do we get into good relationships with, you, with people? How do we fall deeper in love with those that we care for? How do we do all that? Spending time with each other. Being in conversation and dialogue. Doing things together. It's being connected to each other. That's how relationships grow. And people always say it it's on bumper stickers. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. But we still go to the religion side. And how do I know this? Because we come along and we think, if I just have the right system of staying connected to God, then I will somehow be connected to Jesus. And if I do all the right things, so what do we do? We set up systems of how you connect with God. It's religious in its nature. So what do we do? I mentioned this earlier. Please hear my heart in this. So we set up, okay, you know what? To really be close to God, I have to have a devotional plan. Now, this is nothing against life journaling or Bible in a year reading, none of that. But we set up this kind of thing and say, okay, if I make sure I check off the box, if I read my chapters and I journal and I do soap, which is a really good tool, but if that becomes the only way you connect to God, then what happens is it becomes about the system and not the connection. And we become driven by this religious reality as opposed to this passionate connection. Just, just for me, honestly, I used, to, I used to life journal like for years. I have volumes on my shelf of making sure I checked off the box. And it's a great mechanism to start with, but I'll tell you what happens over time. When you become driven by how, many, how much you get in in a day or all those things. Now, some people can do this and it's, there's, life stays in it. For me, it's not that way. For me, I want to make sure that I am connecting with Jesus. I am listening to him. He's speaking to me. I'm responding. So there'll be some days in my devotions I will sit down and I won't read any scripture. Like, oh my gosh, you're the pastor. You're supposed to. Let me tell you, every single day I'm reading scripture. It may not be in my devotional, but majority of time I do. But there may be just times that I know I've, I've sat quietly and listened to the Lord and I need to just bear my soul to Jesus. So I'll pull out my journal, and I'll just start writing. This is the garbage in my life that I need to get out on paper. You need to know. I know you know already, but I need to confess this. I need to get it out. I need, these are the burdens that I'm carrying. I just need to write this out, and then I'll just sit, and I'll just listen. And then there's other days I'll want to read Scripture, and I'll start in, and I'll get into one chapter like this last week. I think about four or five days ago. I sat down and thought, I want to go back. Let me read Genesis 1 again just to remember. What was this all like when it started? So I started in chapter 1, and before you know it, I'm like, God, oh, chapter 2 is pretty good. Oh, chapter 3, that's really kind of crazy, the whole sin thing. And then chapter 4, what's happening after that? And then chapter 5, and then I got to chapter 6. I'm like, okay, time out, i got to stop. But I read that be- not because there was a checklist, not because I had to. I've got to get six chapters in, but because I'm reading it, I'm like, I can't put it down. Because this is what it was when it all started. This is what God speaking to people, God working in people's lives, God creating us, all this stuff. And for me, it's, it took me a number of years to get to that point. It's completely freeing because I look forward. I get grabby when it comes to time like that. Spending time just with Jesus. And for some of you, it might not be sitting down in your living room. It might be you need to go for a walk. 
Maybe you need to get out and you need to hear God speak to you as you pray. And you don't need to be sitting in some closed environment. All of us are different, but we have to maintain that connection. But find the rhythm that works for you to have that deep connection with Jesus. It's just like, think about if you're married or you're dating or you have somebody you're passionate about, how do you get to know them better? You don't repeat the same thing over and over and over again. If I took Kim out every single week at the same time, we went to the same restaurant and we bought the same thing, went to the same movie all every week, that would, that would be lame, wouldn't it? Kim was in first service. She would say, yeah, that's lame. In fact, if we did that when we were dating, we wouldn't be married today, would we? Why? Because it's like I keep doing the same thing. I'm doing the system and it's supposed to change something. Jesus is not really interested in a system. He's interested in your heart, in your life. Because he wants someday, remember his intent is he wants people to go to heaven. That's why he came and died for us. He wants to someday look down and say, yes, I know you. I've known you for years. We've walked day by day together because you've spent time with me. You've seen me at work in your life. You've seen me at work in your neighborhood. You've joined me in my mission. We've been walking side by side your whole life. And now, welcome, good and faithful servant. Now enjoy your reward. That's what he wants to say. But he doesn't want to say, I don't know you. Can you imagine his heart to have all of eternity with us spoiled because we weren't ready? And he has to say, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Gave you a shot at it. Gave you opportunities to know me, but you never really gave me all of who you are. You never really turned your life over to me. Let me close with this. In, a, in the moment, the worship team will join us for one last song. But I know that all of what we walk through with Matthew, I know that what we're looking at in Matthew 25, these are not easy passages. The, the words of Jesus are difficult. And sometimes it can feel really heavy and really kind of hard. And sometimes we can walk away from a Sunday feeling like, man, Pastor John, you got me again. And really, honestly, it's Jesus, you got me again. But I want you to understand something. There's, there's something that it's easy for us to forget when we walk out of here. You and I should not leave this place with a heaviness. You and I should leave this place with a great sense of anticipation, anticipation and excitement for the fact that Jesus is going to return. I want you just for a moment, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes because I want you to just see what this is all about. Because this is what I think sometimes we miss. is Jesus is wanting us to be prepared because he loves us, because he wants us to be with him. And that's why he's giving us the warning signs. And that's why he's telling us to make sure that we're not stuck in routine and complacency. And even in the next couple of weeks when we finish out the series, he's giving us instruction because he wants us to be with him. But what I want you to picture right now is where we are heading. Why the the culmination of the gospel, Jesus' return and his people going to be with him forever, really is good news. You see, because God created humanity with a very specific purpose, we know that all of creation glorifies God and the pinnacle of that creation is us as human beings that to bring glory to him. But he created us, and I was reading this this last week in Genesis, he created us more valuable than any tree or plant or grass or flower. More valuable than any animal, even though in their uniqueness. The pinnacle of creation, because he gave us a capacity to be in relationship with him. 
There's nothing else in all of creation that can have a direct personal relationship with the God of the universe except human beings. And when he created us, his desire is that we would be with him forever. But in his, his love for us, he gave us the ability to choose whether we wanted to be with him or not. And you know the story. You know how it goes. Adam and Eve made the choice. We make the choice. We choose to be our own God. We choose to be separate. But God will not give up. He will continue to pursue. And that's why ultimately Jesus came down, became human, died on the cross, rose from the dead to deal with the biggest issues we have. Sin that leads to death, which means separation from God, which doesn't have to happen. He wants us to be with him. And what we are anticipating is when someday he comes back and we get to be rescued from this world and go to be with him forever. And then someday we find ourselves in that throne room. We are going to be standing in front of his throne with billions and billions of people from all of history, from every language, from every tribe, from every people group, worshiping him, worshiping the God of the universe. The God who has always existed. The God who is all-knowing. The God is all-powerful. He has no limits to him whatsoever. But he's loved us so much that he wants us to be with him. We will be standing face-to-face with him. That's where this is going. And I don't know about you, but that, just, just picture that. That's where this is going and what joy is there going to be that we get to experience for the first time in our existence why we're alive Why we exist is to be in his presence, to be with him forever, to worship. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, Great I Am. The statement, I am, is one of the most comprehensive statements that Jesus is the great I am. He's the one that always has been. He always is present, and he always will be. He is the answer to every question of the human soul. He's everything that we need, all wrapped up in who he is as God. And we get to stand in his presence. We get to walk side by side. We get to be face with face with him forever. That's why this is exciting. That's why we should have anticipation. That's why we should be prepared, because that's what Jesus' desire is for us. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to remain connected to you, as you said in in John 15, that we would abide in you constantly. So Lord, mess up the rhythms of our life that cause us to to get drowsy in our walk, to be complacent. Re-energize us once again to be focused on you, to be connected with you, to see you at work in our lives, to hear your voice, so that someday when we stand before you, you look down and you say, yeah, I know you. And I welcome you into my presence forever. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. Help us, help us to live this out in our lives so that we can be the good and faithful servants who experience the reward that you have for us in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.